You're listening to Soul Roadmap, episode number five. Welcome to Soul Roadmap Podcast. Each week you'll hear strategies and inspiration to take action and live life better. Hi, I'm Dina Cataldo, lawyer, coach, and entrepreneur. This podcast is your roadmap to creating more success in your life, business, and relationships. Let's get started. You've heard the headlines lately. Another famous person who seemingly has it all takes their own life. And the Me Too movement, where women who've suffered abuse speak out to help other women find their voice and bring awareness to abuses suffered daily. This episode touches on both subjects with a woman who's lived through her own battles with abuse and attempted suicide and came out of it a thriver. Before I tell you more about our guest, I want to tell you about the free journal prompts and mantras quick sheet I created especially for this episode. Our guest and I have a conversation about ways to cope with trauma and one of them has to do with journaling and using mantras. So I created this quick sheet to work through some of the things that we talked about. And you can download it at dinacataldo.com forward slash episode five. In fact, you can get everything that we talk about, all the links to the people and the books that we talk about in this episode at dinacataldo.com forward slash episode five. Now on to our guest. Mariam Bakul Uba is a transformational coach and holistic health and wellness expert. She empowers women to transform trauma into triumphs and create a thriving body, mind, and soul. Marion is an advocate for sexual abuse awareness and entrepreneurship for women of color. She's appeared on and written for numerous television shows and online publications. She's also the host of Thriver Lifestyle Podcast and Mondays with Marion on YouTube. I think you're going to love her and appreciate her openness on abuse and attempted suicide. Let's dive into our conversation now. Before we start diving into your story, I'd like you to introduce people to who you are right now. Sure. My name is Marianne Bacall-Uba, and I'm a transformation coach, a speaker, uh, an author, and also a podcaster. Tell us a little bit about your podcast. Sure. So my podcast stemmed from my book called Survivor to Thriver that I'm currently working on, and hopefully it'll be launched by the end of this year. And Survivor to Thriver is a memoir slash self-help, like personal development book. And it's really my journey and my story of overcoming childhood sexual abuse and incest and the, the PTSD I suffered and the depression, anxiety, and really the denial and kind of my struggles with living a double life until the point where four years ago, over four years ago, I OD'd. And that was really my big wake up call because I had <laughs> an out-of-body near-death experience that really, really shook me and woke me up. That's really what I wanted to focus on in my work, uh, coaching women in what I speak about, you know, is really the thriver part, like what we can do now to heal and what we could do to really change our lives for the better and thrive. I love that. Um, so can you tell us a little bit of your backstory? How did you grow up? Like, where did you grow up? Mm -hmm. um, what kind of uh, culture did you grow up in? So I'm Filipino American, but I actually was born in the Philippines and I moved here right before my fifth birthday. Before I actually was raised by my aunt and my grandmother in the Philippines. And I didn't know my parents. I actually didn't meet them until I was five or I don't remember ever meeting them until I was five. When I, when my grandmother brought me here 
well, here meaning LA. <laughs> I grew up in LA, not here. I live in Miami now, but here in the US. And so that was a really huge change for me. I think that was my first really traumatic experience when you think of things that really change you was, you know, I came from such a loving family um, with my grandmother and my aunt and this sense of community. When I was in the Philippines, we lived in a big house and I had my cousins and my aunts and it was all filled with love. And then I moved to the U.S. to these strangers that I barely knew and they were very cold and I didn't know them. I was just basically thrown into, I didn't know the language before. I actually learned how to speak English and read uh, watching cartoons, really love and then reading books. And I just started really loving reading. And so that's how I learned English. Looking back, I see now how like the love that I received when I was like from one to five, from I was a baby to five is what sustained me when I was going through my trauma. Even from the beginning, they were very cold and strict. So my mother was always working. She wasn't really what you would consider a warm, nurturing mother. She was very tiger mom. <laughs> so to the sense where, you know, she was very strict. I had to, you know, which was great. Like she drove me to be very studious. And I always did well and excelled in school because of her. She was very like, you have to like educate yourself because, you know, they can take the clothes off your back, but they can't take what's in your head. So that really stuck with me. It was very like, do well in school, do this, be disciplined. Um, and she worked a lot. So I was home alone a lot, either with my father or just really home alone in general, because at that time they couldn't afford babysitters so much. And so I was home a lot, babysitting my sister since I was, I don't know, like six, seven. So I, I grew up very fast. I don't really remember much of a childhood for me. I feel now like I've finally grown up to where I think my mentality was since the beginning. And since I grew up so fast with everything that I had kind of been through, I feel now being in my 30s, I'm finally catching up to where my mind used to be. I never really felt like a child. And I think that's just, just what I overcame and what I went through. I detached a lot or I was just really focused on school or other things. Kind of really, my parents were strict. So when my dad thought of discipline, it was disciplined by the belt. You know, I couldn't really do much. It was very regimented. I wasn't allowed to watch TV. And like in hindsight, there were certain parts where, yes, the discipline was the reason why I'm so like disciplined in my life and I achieved so much. But at the same time, there was no balance of getting that love and affection from my parents. Um, and because my mom was really never there, um, it started about 10, my dad started uh, sexually abusing me. In the beginning, I didn't know that it was wrong. And all the things he kept telling me, which I've had to undo during my, you know, my healing process was he used to tell me that he loved me. And this is, you know, him loving me. This is, you know, it's things that I wanted. It really started with I was 10. I got my period. And he said, I have to examine you. Because this is what, you know, this is, I need to make sure everything's correct. Doctors do this, you know, I'm doing this because this is, you know, this is normal. And that's kind of really how it started. So a lot of things that he said, I mean, it seemed, and, and this is a father figure. So you, you trust them, right? You have this trust and you don't know any better. You're a child. You have no, you have no definition of what is right or wrong just yet. So you, you trust that this person who is your father and is supposed to protect you and love you is telling you the right things. And was there ever a point when you realized, hey, this isn't right? Um, I think around when I was about 13, 14. And that's really where I had a huge shift in my life around that age too. Because I think that's when I started realizing that that wasn't normal. Like that wasn't right. Like I felt it, but I didn't know what to do. I actually tried telling my mom when I was 14. 
and she didn't believe me. I, it took me a long time. Like I started feeling like this was wrong and I, it took me so much courage, you know, to, to tell her and she didn't believe me. What did she say to you? She said that she actually, her and my dad convinced me that I was lying. Oh. Um, yeah. They said I was being malicious, you know, cause he was saying, what? I'm not doing that. I'm just, I, I care for you. You know, you're, you're, you're being so it's like, you're, you're being like these American kids who like someone shows you affection and you take it the wrong way when we're just, we just love you. And, and they really twisted it. And I actually had to say sorry for lying. And I remember, I remember that was one of the episodes where I actually could, tried to commit suicide and I popped a lot of pills because I was like, well, if no one's going to believe me, like for a long time, I thought like I was like literally in hell, like in prison. And so I actually tried to commit suicide and down like a bottle of Tylenol or something. Um, and my half brother caught me and he like forced me to throw everything up. And I went to like really deep depression. It was also when I was 13 that I started drinking heavily um, and doing drugs. Um, even though I did well in school, I had such a double life. Like I was still a straight A student and like did like what people thought. Like I was in volleyball. I was part of the church choir. I was um, class president. And then every chance I got, I actually snuck out and I started doing ecstasy and feed and drinking because for me, that was my escape from reality. Like that was the only time I felt I could like not have flashbacks or memories. So how did you keep up with all of that? Like how did you, know, you manage to balance this double life? It sounds like both were incredibly time consuming and energy consuming. I just, I didn't want to get in trouble. I felt like I always heard my, my parents, especially my mom telling me like that school is everything. Like I needed to be educated. I needed to do this. And I also, I think in the back of my head realized that that was also my ticket out because everyone had told me, you know, once you go to college, I had my eye on the prize on college, like eyes on the prize for college. Cause for me, college was my escape. I didn't know how. I just knew that if I went to college, I'd be able to move out. And so I had like other, um, People when I was going through high school that got pregnant and some went to jail and or some just stayed home. And I realized like, I don't want that because then I'll be dependent on my parents. And so I knew that college was my way out. So fully concentrated on, on doing well in school. Wow. Yeah. And wow. also because school for me was my outlet. Like school was the only place, you know, everyone looks forward to weekends. Everyone wants to go home. School was the only place. My parents were really strict. I wasn't allowed to really go out. That's why I had to sneak out. But school was the only time that they would allow me to be out because I had to do something for school. So they always supported school. If I said I had to go to a birthday or to go somewhere, they were against it. But if I said, hey, um, you know, we have something, we have rehearsals require, or I have practice for mock trial or do this, they would say yes. So I did everything I could to be involved in everything in school because that was the only reason for me to not be home. Did you ever feel like you had anybody you can, could, could confide in? No, because I thought that my mom would be the one to possibly, you know, I thought if anyone would be able to help me or save me, it would be my mother. And that didn't happen. So I, I just turned to the only way I knew how to cope. And I think even maybe if there was a part of her that would have believed that, in, in an Asian culture, it's very like, we don't have problems. That doesn't exist. If there's a problem, sweep it under the rug. Never talk about it ever again. You know, you have to keep pretenses up. Nothing is wrong. I even, I remember mentioning before, I was like, that I'm depressed. And she's like, that's impossible. You're too young to be depressed. You know, she's like, you have nothing to be depressed about. And you just need to focus on school. Like in hindsight, a lot of what I, now that I know what I know, I last, there were so many ways that I lashed out. I ended up like in the hospital because I had eating problems. I had ulcers when I was a kid. Just things that like would be red flags to people who would understand and know. You know, I was a cutter. 
you know, all these things, but yet no one really like caught on the signs and she didn't, she just refused to see it. It's also in my culture. It's like that denial. I think she's just always been in denial. Even until now, I actually have had a strange relationship with my mom since I went public with all of it. And she just feels that that was such a long time ago. You know, you should have just get gone over that. Um, oh, so she believes you now. She just wants you to be over it. Yeah. And I don't know if she fully believes like the magnitude of what happened because, you know, she's like, well, your dad said he's sorry. And, you know, let's just, let's just forget about this. You know, this is, this is, uh, why are you making such a big deal out of something that happened such a long time ago? Oh, wow. You know, it's, that's why I've distanced, distanced myself from that just because I can't change how she thinks. And she's in this reality that's not my reality. Well, talking about changing how you think, I mean, you went through a big transformation. I know you did go to college and mm -hmm. you did continue your education and you're successful. So can you tell us that transition into college and beyond? Yeah. So college, um, I was really happy because I finally was able to move out. Um, but I was still in denial. I think a big part of me thought that, okay, that was over. I'm not out in the streets. I'm not like homeless or an addict. I sh I'm fine. Like I really was in denial that I went through something traumatic. Um, and I was like that for a long time, even though when I would get triggered and I would have like, I had anxiety and depression for a long time, but every time it would get triggered, I would just drink or do drugs to like, forget about it, you know? So that was my coping mechanism. Every time, like I started feeling anxious or, cause I still had to pretend that everything was okay. So on holidays and things, I had to go home and I would see my father. I had to pretend that everything was fine. So I remember being always so anxious and I would like drink or do something to like calm my nerves because like I didn't want to be near him, but I knew I had to. And that was my coping mechanism because that's all I knew. I was always told before that, why are you complaining? Or why are you sad? Or why, why is the reason why you're depressed? You have a good job. You have a career. You have friends. You have you know, people are talking all this like you're actually being ungrateful. I was, you know, when I tried opening up again to my mom and other people, like more like relatives they said I was being ungrateful because I had a good job I went to college like I had nothing to complain about yeah. and so <laughs> it's just for I so I believed it you know and so I just went and I was like okay I you're right I have nothing to complain about and there's nothing wrong I I'm, I'm so lucky compared to all these other people who don't have anything and so that was I just I didn't seek help you know so I self-medicated you know you had to go back on holidays and and my understanding is is that at some point you're father stopped the abuse what how did he stop like what was what was the mechanism for him to stop did you say something what what happened I graduated and I left home and then he just never tried anything again no he was I mean he's he was always very like grossly touchy and I always just like would cringe but I, I felt like after like in in college i had a little bit more I guess confidence to like not like put my not put myself in that situation because every time he abused me i was always in my room you know um i was living there i was in my room and i was helpless you know when i was in college i barely like slept over at, at my parents house i just went to go and then i went back i didn't really we didn't have a lot of alone time you know where i was forced to be alone because i had a car i could have left so that power thing wasn't as there anymore, mm. you know, because I was powerless before when I was under 18 and still living under the roof. Wow. Yeah. So you were using alcohol and drugs to, to numb out during college. Were you able to keep up your grades and still keep up this double life? What was going on? Yeah. Um, I was very involved in college, in um, student activities. I studied abroad twice. I got scholarships. <laughs> I, um, 
I was also, uh, I got on Dean's list a few times. Like for me, I had just gotten so used to living this double life, you know, that for, I thought that was normal. I thought, well, this is what people do. So like what, even when I transitioned, I graduated and I worked, uh, and I climbed up the corporate ladder. I just, I thought, okay, you just, as long as on the outside, everything's okay. You know, this is how I'm coping. Like I actually started justifying it. Like, this is good. I need to drink and do this because this is what keeps the outside appearances look, look fine. You know, I thought this is how people deal with things. You know, yeah, you're just um, being social. Yeah. For me, it wasn't always to really do it for fun. Like here, I'll have a glass of wine occasionally, but I'll stop at one before. Like I would literally drink to blackout so that I wouldn't think my mind wouldn't go to those places. Did any of your friends recognize that there were some things going on that, that maybe your, um, your second life, the party lifestyle, maybe that was a sign that there was something going on more than you were telling them? Um, I was with a round of people who also partied a lot. You know, so I was in that environment where, you know, they probably were, you know, running from their own demons as well, you know, and we just all kind of these broken people, you know, who are coping using drugs and alcohol and partying. Um, they were all also professional. And then we just, you know, the times that we had, we just, you know, got together and would rage. And for me, that was the norm. And I thought like, okay, well, I'm doing well in school and career, all this. And I would go through my like, states of depression. And then like in my head, I'd be like, well, this is what life is. This is normal. Like this is what other people do. Right. So what made you think one day that, Hey, this isn't normal. I didn't until I overdosed in 2014. This was a time in my life where there was extra. I actually, um, I launched my own like consulting business for marketing. And so my business was new and I was commuting a lot and I had to move home for a year and a half. So I think that's what triggered me again. I had never for my whole life after I graduated, I had supported myself. I had done all this, but because of like, you know, starting that, that old business that I had, I was strapped with money. So I had to move back home to like, kind of like rebuild and make ends meet. And I had to be back in the, after like years and years of not living at home back in the room where everything happened. So I think that also led to a lot of my anxiety and, and the PTSD like struck again. I had gone from this amazing corporate career to like doing my own thing, which I didn't know what I was doing. For me, I felt like I was failing because I had made this really good money before. I had all these accolades. And then for me to do this business and it wasn't like, running as well as I'd like it to. And in hindsight, I did not know what I was doing. I had no plan. <laughs> um, and then also at that same time that year, my niece and nephew, which were both under the age of one, passed away within a week from each other. So it was just like things just top like over and over. And it went to the point where I went to a friend's party, a friend's house. I was already having suicidal thoughts. I was already severely. And I was like, you know what? I'm just, I just kept pushing. I was always that person that kept pushing myself, pushing, pushing. Even I had friends who were like, okay, that's enough. You don't need to drink this whole, you don't need to take any more pills. You don't need to do all this. I just, I think at that point I was ready. Like I remember thinking if I die, I'm okay. Cause then like, I just want this all to be over. And that was it. And that day, that's what happened. Um, where I OD'd and I had an out of body near death experience where I was literally like hovering over my body. Like I saw myself go into convulsions and I saw like, I basically, God, the universe, whatever source showed me what would have happened. So I saw them call 911, put me in a body bag. I went to my funeral. I saw everything. And I saw what would have happened if 
I went in that direction because God gave me a choice. You know, you can stay here in this feeling of absolute bliss. Like when I say like the feeling of like being home and being connected and just this absolute happiness or going back, I had a choice. He told me that it's fine. Whatever you choose, you know, you'll be loved. You don't, you don't have to go back. But I knew that I wasn't done with whatever I needed to do in this lifetime. And I chose to come back. And I went back into that space and time, like right before they called the ambulance. on. And so that was like huge wake up call. Um, well, I, I think we need to talk a little bit more about this, especially because there have been some really high profile suicides in the news lately. Yeah. With people who, you know, on the outside, you know, what we get to see Mm -hmm. They seem to have everything. Yeah. And we don't ever know, like this, this just goes to show, we don't ever know what's going on in someone's head Mm -hmm. and we don't ever know what someone is feeling. I've heard some incredible judgment of people and uh, people saying like, they're so selfish for having done this, you know, those kinds of things that come out. And it's to me, I, I can, I can empathize. If someone feels like they are at rock bottom, that there's nowhere to turn and this is the ultimate relief and have nowhere to go, like have absolutely no idea what they could do to make themselves feel better. Glad you bring this up because when people say that, I'm actually, it's quite the opposite. I wanted to unburden people from me. I was actually thinking the opposite. I didn't think of it as selfish. Like when I was at that point in the times where I've been suicidal, it's because I don't want to burden people. I wanted like, I felt like my presence was burdening people. Like I didn't want people to worry about me. I wanted them to like move on. Like I didn't want them to waste energy on like wondering, like helping to fix me. For me, like actually me dying would have been like the problem to solve it all. Like I was actually thinking, well, if I'm not here, then they won't have to worry about me, take care of me, like do all this. They can just go on into like with their lives. Like that's really like the thoughts that was going in my head. Who do you mean they? Do you mean your family? My friends? family, my friends, you know, um, because at that time I did have some, some friends ask me like something's wrong, you know, like you're because like, I would go into like longer ruts, you know, of not getting out of bed, of not doing anything, of being unproductive. It was starting to really, really catch up. And like, I couldn't like bounce back as quickly. And so I just felt like I was so tired. And I was like, I just, I, I don't want people to worry about me. I don't want, I just want this to be over so that people can move on with their lives and not think about like, not waste their energy on me. It's actually quite the opposite. Ooh. So after this overdose was there an instant realization was there you know did it take some time to figure out what was going on tell me what happened it definitely took some time to process because the information that was given to me like seeing like i still couldn't believe that like i knew that it happened but it was also so surreal um and i knew that i had to do something i just didn't know what and so i bought a one-way ticket to move from Miami, uh, LA to Miami, because mm-hmm. all I knew is that if I stayed in LA, I would have gone back into that same cycle. It was so comfortable because I knew people, you know, I would have gone back to the same party, like back to my old ways. You know, so I knew I had to do something to disrupt that. Like it was my intuition. I just chose to trust it. Like, but for some reason, like inside of me, I knew I had to do it. And what I told you I, Miami. Cause I, I went there a few months prior um, to visit a friend, I was with girlfriends, we visited a friend, and I fell in, like, I just felt this energy here in Miami, like, just being near the water, and for me, water is so calming, and so, like, just, it, there's some, there's healing powers to being around water, like, 
my balcony overlooks water and I can never be ungrateful every day. Like even though I'm something happens or I feel whatever, like I look out and I just feel instantly calm, energized, like all of the above, you know, um, it just felt right. I, I don't know what it is. And I decided to trust it. So when you got to Miami, what happened? Did anything change in your life? Yes and no, because I really didn't have a plan. I came here with barely any savings. I barely knew anyone. I didn't have a plan. I didn't have a job. Um, but I knew that I had enough experience and skill set where I'd figure it out. I knew I, I was always so used to surviving. I knew that I would survive no matter what. Like, I think in the back of my head, I, I've always had this fire fuel that drove me, you know, to prove people wrong or to prove my parents, to prove to myself that I didn't need anyone. I was, I was very hardened as well. You know, I think as a survivor, there's two ways you can go about it, right? Some people go into complete victim mode where like they're completely helpless and they, they don't want to, you know, do anything or they can't do anything or they feel like the whole world or the opposite. You're in survivor mode, but you close yourself off to everything else, you know, and it's you against the world. And that was me. It was me against the world. And no matter what happened, you know what? Like, F everyone, I could like prove you wrong, you know? So that really was what fueled me because I knew that even if I, and I actually did, I had to uh, bartend and serve tables again, you know? And I was like, you know what? As long as I don't have to, you know, I'm away from that and I can like start anew. I just knew I had to start. And it was, it was difficult. It was humbling. You know, it really like, I look back and it was so necessary because I had to break down in order for me to build myself back up to this transformation. Isn't that interesting how that happens is like, you really just have to start from almost like square one under, I was beyond like square one. I like was under here, you know, like I was in a pit and I literally had to crawl my way out of it. That's what it felt like and emerged like completely different. So at what point did you feel like you were, because when you're, it's you against the world and you are not in a position where you feel like you need to ask for help or that you should ask for help because you've been taught your whole life, hey, look, I've got to depend on me because I can't trust anybody else. Mm -hmm. uh, um, no one's going to believe what I have to say. Mm -hmm. What do you do and how do you get past that? Because that takes a lot of energy. I started meditating. Meditation is really what I believe saved my life and like changed my life because for all of my life, I had looked through outside sources to fill this void, to give me answers, whether it's work or drinking or drugs or people, whatever it was, I was always looking out for outside sources. And meditation was the first time I went inward and I went to me. When I say like meditation saved my life, when I started meditating, I started having my dreams, like things like activated inside me. I had crazy visions I had like it was nuts and to the point where like I, I went like to the past to heal like my inner child like so many crazy things happened to me <laughs> like in a, in a good way but really yeah. crazy things. yeah well I, I kind of want to bring meditation a little down to earth because you know the people I hang out with I got to say if you start saying visions and, and <laughs> things like that they're they're gonna say oh yeah I'm never doing meditation now. <laughs> So, but, so, so it, I want to bring this, make this really accessible to people. Yes, yes, who, yes. Even if you don't feel like that's going to happen because you have some, some notions of what meditation might be, that it is a quieting of yourself. And how did you get into meditation? 
I had tried meditation years ago when I was working in corporate and I went at it a very aggressive way. You know, I was an overachiever. I was like, okay, people are saying meditation's great. All right, I'm going to sit down 10 minutes. I'm going to do it. It's going to be good. I'm always good at stuff. And I tried sitting down and my mind went louder. And it was just like that one minute seemed like it was 10 hours. And so I thought it's not for me. This is for hippies out there. This is not for me. Like, I don't believe in meditation. And when I moved to Miami, I actually in the the first year I was here, I still couldn't let go of bad habits because I didn't know like how to cope. You know, I actually ended up in the ER for a panic attack. And I realized like at the same time, I, I also started reading different books. So as I was trying to figure things out, I was like, okay, there's all these people who've gone through hardships and have seemed to overcome it. What are they doing? Like, what are they doing? And so I started reading Wayne Dyer. I started reading Eckhart Tolle. I started reading Gabby Bernstein, Marianne Williamson, like all these spiritual people and like all these other people who had gone through trauma. And I saw the pattern was meditation or people had talked about meditation. So I was like, let me give this a shot and let me go about it a different way. And this is actually how I teach my, my clients, you know, instead of jumping and going straight to 10 minutes, when I say it was a very humbling experience, I was like, I couldn't do it before. And I had to crawl before I could walk. I started with one minute and then one minute, one minute turned to two, turned to three, turned to four. And it literally was just me breathing, like focusing on my breath and then guided meditations and listening to that. I, oh, I felt, you know what? I owe this to myself. Like, what's one minute? Like, what's one minute? And I figured I've tried everything else and that didn't work. It nearly killed me. You know, this is, let me try this out. And I just, day by day, I just started and I built that up, you know, without any expectations like I used, I had before that I was going to kill this 10 minutes and I was going to be such a pro, you know, <laughs> I, was, I was cocky. And I was so humbled. And I was like, let me just do one minute. That really just, that grew. And I think before the visions, because I know there's people here, like I didn't always have that. It was really the first time that I was able to sit with myself because I always had a problem sitting with myself. And because I meditated, I was able to sit with myself and actually separate myself from the crazy thoughts. That was the first time I felt like it, I felt that happening because I always associated me with my thoughts. I thought I was my thoughts. Right. And we are not our thoughts. We are not. Oh my God, That's like crazy town, right? Like, are we really this crazy town thing that's happening up here in our thoughts? No. Mm -hmm. I also read Untethered Soul. It was at the same time I was reading and it really changed how I started thinking. And I started applying basically like, okay, they seem to be doing well. Like, let me listen and actually apply what they're doing. Like I took the role of a student sponge and I just soaked in everything. You're the second person in like the last week uh, who mentioned Untethered Soul to me. I guess I, I need to read that now. Yes. yes. <laughs> That's a really good book. Yeah. Everything that we're talking about, I'm going to link to it in the show notes so that yeah. way you know who we're talking about. There was something I was reading right before I got on this interview with you. It really resonated with me and with what I knew of your story. And it was that our physical world is the result of the thoughts, feelings, and actions that we take. Mm -hmm. The ability, like what you're saying, to quiet our mind just enough to see that we are not our thoughts. And that if we just make this subtle shift in our thoughts, our physical world is going to change. Mm -hmm. Like we, we can't even help it. It's just, it's so tiny. It's that two millimeters. It's that mm -hmm. tiniest shift that takes you along your journey. Yeah. Is that, was that your experience? Yeah. I think one of the books that really like 
changed my, uh, that made me see things so differently, that was so amazing to me, was Eckhart Tolle's The Power of Now. It really made me realize that most people are living in the past or the future. And I had realized with all these flashbacks, with the PTSD, I was living in the past. I was constantly recreating all the trauma, everything that was happening to me over and over and over, like replaying it in my head and still thinking that I was there. Whereas the power of now is that we're here, like at this very present moment. Are you safe? Are you okay? You know, if you're reading this book, you are in the now, you're not being hurt. For me, that was so like mind blowing. Oh my God, you're right. And I just started and he's and in the book, he mentions when you realize that you are not in the now, you are in the now. Hmm. And so I started thinking, like I started asking that question more times in my day and I realized when you start asking that, you just bring more awareness to this present moment. And you don't think about what happened. And I just started practicing these like small little things. There's there's something that I read last night. It's something that I've been focusing on today and refocusing my attention. Anytime I feel like a little anxiety or mm-hmm. I have some worry about whatever it is, I just remind myself, this is a reflection of my old thoughts. Things are going to improve soon. And I feel that little bit of peace right in the middle of your heart. A shift. Exactly. It's just creating that tiniest little shift that releases any tension. It's Mm -hmm. so strange. And I mean, it's taken me years to get to this point where I can Mm -hmm. even attempt this Mm -hmm. and not feel like silly. But like, (laughs) you know, like it took a lot of digging in to realize that there were these shifts that I needed to make. Yeah. Yeah, but it's beautiful. And it is like, once you start realizing how much power you have in your, it starts becoming like, oh my gosh, like you've unlike you unlock this potential that was always there to make these shifts. And it's really just bringing awareness, you know, and knowing that you have the ultimate power and control over the direction of where your thoughts are, thoughts and our language. You know, I started realizing, I started journal writing, I started getting anxious or things started getting triggered. Instead of doing something like an old coping mechanism when that started coming up was like, okay, I got to drink something. So I calmed down. I started writing it, writing all my thoughts and all the things. And I read it. I'm like, that is so crazy. We release it. We have to release the energy or else it swims and festers in our head and becomes amplified. But if we like pour it out and I started seeing patterns, oh, okay, this is triggering me that I never saw before. Right. It's the, it's, sometimes it's not the writing. Sometimes it's going back and reading what yeah. you wrote, even like a month later. Hey, I'm repeating the same behavior. What's up with that? Yeah. Things that I never realized, I started realizing that there were patterns or maybe there are certain people. Every time I would talk to my mom before, I would get these feelings of anxiety and I'd always want to have a drink. And I started realizing like, oh my God, these are my triggers. The beauty is that now I have foundational basics. I call them fiber basics that I know how to cope in healthy ways now, which as before, it was very toxic ways. Now, the same feelings come up, but I recognize them and I know how to shift. So when those those thoughts come, that's not me, that's not true. And what do I say? You know, and it just becomes a habit. So what are those thriver mechanisms? What are those new coping mechanisms that you use when these kinds of uh, anxious feelings or worried feelings come up? One is to go back to your breath. Because when people get anxious or angry or mad, their breath starts quickening and it's not steady. We just have to remember to breathe. We forget to breathe. We take our breath for granted. It's so simple, yet people tend don't use it. It's really the simplest things, the foundations that I can go back to. And then meditation is one of my basic 
apps now that I go to all the time for anything. I meditate daily. Someone pisses me off or cuts me off. Instead of reacting, I breathe and it really does help, <laughs> you know, and then I meditate and I'm just like, okay, I don't need to waste my energy on that. Or you can like, for one of the things that's helped me with my road rage uh, is- Yeah, road rage, exactly. You know, cut me off or whatever. I say, oh, well, I hope he has a, a good day, you know, or I hope he's all right. You know, I try to give them the benefit of the doubt if I had to make. Another thing is journal writing. For me, that's one of like a basic foundational thing for me. And then another one is- as simple as it is to be out in nature. Now, because I'm so close to the beach, I go to the beach or a park and there's trees here, like just all those things. Like I take a lot of time for myself. Do you yeah. use any prompts for your journaling? Like there might be somebody who's listening who's like, what the heck do I talk about? I do. And there's times where I do something called intuitive writing when I have questions or I want clarity for myself. And intuitive writing is when you do prompts at night, you read it, you internalize it, you sleep on it. I actually sleep right next to my journal because it's also my dream journal. So when I have dreams, I write down things I remember. Right when you wake up, before you do anything, look at that question or those statements and just answer it without even thinking because we have to do it before our logical mind starts getting in the way and, and really preventing us. But just write and write and write. And you'll be surprised at things that just flow out of you. Give us a couple yeah. of examples. For example, what is the most important step I need to do today to move me forward in my purpose. A lot of times we want to do 10 things. I just need to do one. Just what's the one thing that I need to like really focus on today? Another one is a mantra. What mantra do I need to use this week? Like what should I focus on? And it's really just going back to the basics instead of doing so many things. I think the reason why we get so caught up with confusion is because we want to do so much, right? Well, let's break down what a mantra is. So a mantra is uh, a statement or saying, it's similar to affirmations as well, that you say with intention. Certain mantras, and I use this interchangeably, my, my mantra or for the day or my affirmation and intention for the week that I want to focus on. For example, um, I'll do one of my mantras recently. Mm -hmm. It's, um, my great work is supported. And so I actually got this recently from Gabby Bernstein <laughs> is oh. my great work is supported because one of the limiting beliefs, you know, that I feel sometimes a lot of people who are doing spiritual work or healing work, we want to give so much, right? Yet sometimes we feel we don't want to be paid for it or we still have this feeling of feeling guilty for possibly making a lot of money doing this kind of work. And so knowing that it's all energy. And if I'm here to help and impact other people, that's the energy exchange. And I shouldn't feel guilty or bad about it. One mantra that I try to remind myself of when my thoughts kind of go spinning either in a negative way or, mm -hmm. you know, I start repeating stories in my head like our brains are, you know, want to do sometimes. I'll say, yeah. I am not my thoughts. I am the thinker of my thoughts. Therefore, I can think about something else. And yeah. Shift my focus. Yeah. yeah. Another one that um, I've done before that I, I still use a lot is I'm a powerful creator of my own reality. And that's a mantra. And that's something I think over and over and over that I'm so that it, it, you, you get empowered. There's power in words. So instead of saying things like, I can't do this, I can't like, nope, I'm a powerful creator of my reality. And so it gives me clarity to, okay, what am I going to do now that I'm going to put down the steps to creating the reality that I want? I love that. And that can work in so many different areas of our lives because mm -hmm. 
you know, let's say, for example, a lot of us, myself included, are self-conscious about, you know, our looks. Mm -hmm. And so one thing that can help us get past that and grow to love ourselves even more is to actually look in the mirror and say one of these mantras. I am beautiful. I am powerful. You know, whatever it is that you feel resonates with you, that feels good. Uh, It may not feel good to say at first. It may actually sound kind of weird when you start saying it. Uh, And then the more you say it, the more your subconscious starts to pick up on it, which is why these mantras can be so powerful. Mm -hmm. Um, Another thing I also say over and over is I am my best friend, my lover, my confidant, and my biggest cheerleader. We are our longest relationship. You know, I I talk about self-love a lot because we have so much love that we want to give everyone else, but we don't have enough to give ourselves. But we have to be our own best friend, our own lover. We have to date ourselves. We have to treat ourselves how we would treat other people that we love. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's important. There's one question I did want to ask you. Um, Yeah. Because you did grow up with a father who abused you, it can't help but show up in relationships. What has your experience been before learning what your triggers were and learning, you know, what you had to through meditation Mm-hmm. with relationships? Um, it, it taught me a lot. It taught me um, because before I used to be, well, my definition, I had a very skewed definition of what love was. You know, I wasn't taught to, you know, I thought that, okay, the people that you love the most, you can't trust them because they're always going to do something to hurt you. So I had trust issues with men. Looking back, I actually talked to my ex-ex-boyfriend about this because we're still, luckily, we're, we're friends. We had a long falling out, but Um, When I came out with my story, I actually went back and I apologized to him. And I said, I'm so sorry that the things that I said and did, I was so unaware. I used to be extremely angry, jealous, needy, like all the things like that. He was always so giving and loving to me, but I always thought there was a hidden agenda. I never trusted it. I, I always thought that whole, it's you're being too good to be true. No one wants to be this nice. Like, what do you want from me? And I used to approach it with that one. It would be good. And then I'd start self-sabotaging. It's too good to be true. He, he's going to want something. I need to hurt him before he hurts me. I'm curious because you bring up apologizing, going back and apologizing to people that you may have hurt. Did the 12-step program in any way play a part in your recovery and like learning about what you wanted to be doing? Uh, no, I never went to AA or did like a 12-step recovery. I went to Tony Robbins' Date with Destiny where we wrote letters to ourselves and to other people. I actually decided to send some of these letters. Mm. I knew that it came to a point where I was like, you know what? Maybe this is what I need to release myself. The thing with forgiveness a lot of times the forgiveness isn't for other people, it's for you. It really is to help you release that energy. I've forgiven my father and my mother. I don't have to be friend. I don't have to be cordial with them, but I've released that anger. I actually don't think about my father at all. And when I do, I pray for him and for my mom. Because for me, that, that anger and that resentment and all those heavy energies, they were just hurting me. Like the forgiveness is really to let go of that energy for my own well-being. Wow. Is there anything that you wanted to close, like any loops that we might have opened up during our conversation, anything you felt like you needed to address that we haven't? I think if there's anyone listening who's gone through something similar, um, any other form of trauma or abuse, just first of all, one, know that you're not alone. 
I think that's one of the things I thought for my whole life. I was the only one going through this. No one else would understand me. No one was going to believe me because I had tried it before. No one did. But realize that you are not alone. There's actually, it's so common. That's the sad part. It's so common, but no one talks about it. So know that you're not alone. So that's one. Second is that you always have a choice. You know, you can choose to continue down this road of unhappiness or depression, whatever, or you can choose to do something to change your mindset and to change the way that your reality will become. It's not going to be easy, but it takes time because it's a lifestyle change. Been used to living our life a certain way, and then we can't expect that oh, I started meditating for 10 days, my life's going to change. It's also gradual. So and just to start small, just that one small thing, that one minute, that one step, just that one thing. It doesn't have to be grand. And you just make it a daily habit. That's it. And before you know it, years will pass by. Like I look back and I'm just like in awe, in gratitude that I've even come this far. I, it's, I'm filled with gratitude every time I wake up because I'm like, I can't believe like I'm where I am. And I, I, when I was going through it, I didn't even think I would be here you know, and what, what would have opened up for me. So for anyone who's been suicidal into that form of depression, whatever it is, just know that it's those small little steps towards the right direction. You know, that'll help you. So. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I think the cat in your, in your apartment needs some meditation. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping you wouldn't hear. You know what? So tell us, Marion, where listeners can find you and learn more about you. Yeah, so they can go on my website, MarianneBakalUba.com. That's M-A-R-I-A-N-B-A-C-O-L-U-B-A. And I'm very active on Instagram at mbakaluba. I have a podcast called Thriver Lifestyle Podcast. But just hop onto my Instagram and all the information is all out there. So I post IG stories. I'm very active on it. So yeah. Oh, that's great. Mm -hmm. And I'll be sure to post all of these links on the show notes. So definitely go there. Check them out. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Wow, wasn't Marianne amazing? She truly transformed her life. I can't help but feel admiration for her and her willingness to share her story. A couple things I want to mention. First, if you haven't joined the Facebook group yet, go there now. That's where the discussion begins. Facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash soul roadmap. Second, if you want to grab the journal prompts and mantras, that we talked about here in this episode. And if you want to find any of the links to any of the books, any of the people that we mentioned in this episode, go to dinacataldo.com forward slash episode five. Thank you so much for your time today. I will talk to you next week. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to Soul Roadmap. If you have a moment, I'd appreciate it if you'd leave an honest review on iTunes. I read every single review, so let me know what you want to hear more or less of, and I'll talk to you next week. Thank you.